Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Idiots Podcast. That's infectious disease insight of two specialists. I'm James, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo Sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm doing generally great. Okay, that's good to know. What are you what are we talking about today? Well, James, today we're talking about the counterpoint to staphylococci, streptococci. Uh, yeah, so streptococci, uh, the other big uh, group of gram-positive cocci, and just a quick reminder, gram-positive refers to its ability to retain uh, a gram stain, a purplish uh, stain that we use in the lab, and cocci refers to the circular shape. Uh, so streptococci are circular shaped, and they are gram-positive. The other big group is staphylococci, and we'll talk about how to differentiate between these two uh, if you ever accidentally stumble into a lab and are forced to conduct yourselves uh, in the manner of a medical scientist. So streptococci. Um, so our outline for the podcast today uh, is going to be broken down similar to the previous episode. What they are, what they do, how they're classified, and then how to kill them. So starting with what they are, so we've already said they're gram-positive cocci. They tend to grow in chains or pairs. Uh, they grow in only one plane, um, as opposed to staphylococci, which grow in multiple planes. So they grow in clusters. And this, um, this is important for when you're identifying them. By looking down a microscope at them on a gram stain, you can see gram-positive cocci and in chains or pairs. They're catalase negative, which is the test we talked about a little bit last week, where basically the ability of the bacteria to reduce hydrogen peroxide, uh, which is a very easy and, and simple test to do. Within the laboratory, once you've got an organism and you think it's a streptococci, we'll come on to the classification in a bit more detail, but the, the basic classification is what type of hemolysis it produces, and then something called Lansfield grouping. In terms of where they're found, uh, so streptococci is a huge group, lots and lots of different bacteria which are all distinct from each other. Yeah, so mo- mostly they're um, found in the kind of up the skin and and the and the, and the mouth, and the. You can find them elsewhere in the upper GI tract, but as you as you descend further down, the microbiota of the of the GI tract is becomes dominated by gram negative and anaerobic organisms, uh, which streptococci are not. They're aerobic, uh, gram positive organisms. Mostly, um, there's this thing called facultatively anaerobic. So streptococci, a lot of them have the ability to reproduce and, and gain uh, energy using oxygen. But if they're forced to and there's not oxygen around, they can function in an anaerobic environment. So that's called facultatively. They can, they're able to do it, but they would they prefer not to. Whereas there's some organisms that can only produce anaerobically, which is obligate. Uh, anaerobes are obligated to do it. Yeah. And they're, they're the anaerobes that you, uh, as a clinician, you would naturally think of. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right, actually. So strep, they can grow on anaerobic media and anaerobic uh, environmental conditions. But on the whole, they prefer that you stuck them in a blood agar plate in an oxygen-rich environment. Thank you very much. And uh, just a, a slight thing as well, where you said there, James, uh, microbiota. So uh, just to define that, so that's basically... If you look at a body compartment or a part of the body and look at every single type of microorganism that's there, that's your microbiota. And the microbiome uh, is similar, but that's when you look at all the organism's genetic material that's there. Uh, so there's a slight difference. That's interesting. Because I, I use those, those interchangeably, really. I use the, I say microbiome, just kind of referring to all the microbiota in a particular area. Yeah, I think people use it quite interchangeably. Um, I'm, uh, I'm taking us off topic, um, as we're prone to do. Maybe we could just have a topic one week where we just it's just called random chat. <laughs> Why, what are you going to say? Uh, no, that's it. I've, I've oh, done, that's it. done that's with it. the all deviation, right. back on course. Yeah. Uh, so next we're going to say what they do. Yeah, so mostly they, they kind of cause... It, it, it varies because it's such a heterogeneous group, but they can mostly be kind of classified in causing skin and soft tissue infection, abscesses, wherever they happen to be or happen to be introduced to, and uh, chest infections. And, and strep pneumonia is the kind of archetypal uh, strep coccus that does this. Um, but really what they do is, is very kind of group uh, specific. So I think maybe we should come on to the classification system. Calm mentioned hemolytic patterns there and what he's referring to is the kind of pattern of hemolysis that the streptococci will, the streptococcal colonies will generate when they're incubated on the blood agar overnight. So you'll, you know, say you have a blood culture that flags positive and it's got a, a strep in it. You'll inoculate a blood agar plate with that and you'll stick it in an incubator overnight and then you'll come and see what's happened in, in the next morning. And there's three things that might have happened. One is that the colonies will have metabolized the blood a little bit and what they'll digest the hemoglobin to biliverdin, which is green. The clue's in the name verd, as in green colored. And they will have a greenish appearance. That's alpha hemolysis. So that's part digestion of the blood. Full digestion is beta hemolysis, since that's when the colony contains something called streptolysin O, which is what the ASO titer tests for. And that is checking for full hemolysis. And then the colony will have like a clear area around it because all the blood has been digested completely. And then the third is, is, is gamma, which is non-hemolysis, which is just a, a couple of groups. And we'll, we'll talk about them. Uh, later on, but that's your that's your three types of hemolysis that you would find on on an agar plate, and so that gives you these three three main clusters: alpha hemolytic streptococci, beta hemolytic strep, and uh, gamma. Will we talk about the alphas first? Yeah, let's talk. I think makes sure, makes sense to go through in order. So the the alphas are divided into, or I divide them rather, uh, into. I think about them as two big groups, streptococcus pneumoniae and everything else. And everything else, because it's, you know, creating these kind of light green colonies, they're referred to as the viridans streptococci. 
um, and viridans is Greek for for green. So they're green strept cocci. So strep pneumoniae, it is an alpha hemolytic strep, and we need to try and tease this apart from the other viridan strept cocci because they've got very different implications. And so we've got a, a lab-based testing for this. Cal, do you want to take us through Optican? Uh, yes, it's called ethyl hydroquine hydrochloride. Perfectly put. Uh, and this interferes with ATPase. The situation in which you'd be doing this is, say you've got a sample of a patient's sputum um, which you send off to the laboratory, it, it's going to be full of bacteria. So the microbiota of the upper respiratory tract is going to be in there, which includes lots of streptococci. And what we want to see is, does this patient have pathogenic bacteria? And one of those would be strep pneumonia. So when you take that sample and put it out into the blood agar plate, you put it on a disc, which has been impregnated with optican, put it in the incubator, and then when you look at it again and there is an organism that um, isn't growing with the optican, uh, then you, you can preliminarily say that might be strep pneumo and look at doing more tests. Mm. Uh, so it's a, it's a laboratory thing, but it's really the main differentiator between strep pneumo and other alpha hemolytic strep. Yeah. And that's, you know, important because like say strep pneumo, it is a colonizer of the, of the upper respiratory tract. Um, it doesn't live on the skin unlike other streptococcal groups, but it, teasing it apart from a, a bunch of the other alpha hemolytic streps, they live in the mouth. And so if you've got salivary contamination of a sputum sample, uh, you can easily get a false positive alpha hemolytic strep result. And you need to tell pretty quickly if that's a strep pneumo or not. So the uh, optican-sensitive alpha-hemolytic streptococci, uh, that would be strep pneumonia, a presumptive diagnosis. You would then go on and try and do some supplementary testing um, uh, to try and tease down. But you could give a preliminary result. Uh, if you're you know, working in the lab, you could give a preliminary result saying this looks like a strep pneumonia, and that's very important to the clinical team. Strep pneumonia causes chest sepsis, obviously, pneumoniae, but also causes uh, abscesses and meningitis, importantly. You know, as James says, it's predominantly going to cause chest infections, pneumonia, and most of the patients that get this infection will be managed in the community and mm. not be that unwell, respond well to antibiotics. But in some cases, particularly in patients who are immune compromised, uh, aren't able to fight off this organism uh, properly, it can become more invasive, uh, get into the bloodstream. Uh, it can then spread to different areas, such as uh, the brain being classical, or joints is another possibility. It can rarely cause infective endocarditis, but because this organism causes so much infection, it isn't an infrequent cause of infective endocarditis if that makes sense you just mm. by sheer volume uh, even though it, it rarely causes it you do you do see it mm. um and even with the within the lung it can become more complicated so causing you know an infection in the plural space like an empyema uh, strep pneumo can can cause that as well so it is a big problem conversely it's quite amenable 
after treatment, especially in Scotland and UK? Yeah, I mean, we worry about um, penicillin-resistant strains, which are more prevalent overseas. And uh, I think the most recent meningitis guidance from the BIA contains a, a sort of list of countries which um, have high levels of penicillin resistance, and you may want to think about alternative antibiotics. But really, most strep pneumo is killed by penicillins, amoxicillin, um, and so that that's kind of why the backbone of your treatment for community acquired pneumonia, and indeed hospital acquired pneumonia, centres around beta-lactams that would target strep pneumo because they are the cause of most cases of of community acquired pneumonia or hospital acquired pneumonia. Uh, but also it will be killed by um, macrolides, doxycycline, other tetracyclines, vancomycin uh, as well. It's, it's usually quite uh, sensitive. But that brings us on to the other group of what, what if it's optican resistant? Um, then they would be classified as viridan streptococci. And there's a this is a source of permanent confusion for infectious disease trainees because they keep on changing the bloody names and they keep on saying, okay, this species is now a group and, uh, you know, streptococcal renaming uh, rivals fungi renaming in terms of its complexity. But I've, I've got a little mnemonic here that I think might help, but certainly help me remember all the alpha-hemolytic streptococci that weren't strep pneumo. And that's my mouthy salivus streptococci, which stands for mitis, mutans, salivaris, and sanguinis. Um, and these are uh, viridan streptococci or alpha-hemolytic streptococci. Most of them live in the mouth and most of them can cause meningitis, chest infections, but usually you have to have a reason, uh, as in a risk factor, such as you're an alcoholic or there's been some sort of breakdown in the in the lung epithelial lining, like lung cancer. And they're a, a reasonably common cause of neutropenic sepsis and endocarditis. There's one group that, that deserves kind of special mention, which is the anginosis group, which isn't in my mnemonic, uh, I'm afraid. But I, I think they deserve to be thought of, uh, of separately. And that's the anginosis group. So you might have heard of Millerized strep. And as James alluding to, there is quite a lot of name changing. Mm. And I think this is a, it's quite confusing for medical practice because the naming, don't, don't blame us. Uh, the naming <laughs> is decided by the taxonomists and with improved methods for categorizing organisms using their genetic material, we are getting better at placing them in the right group. And I think it must be quite satisfying doing that job and, and you know, very neatly organizing all your organisms into the right group and reclassifying them. I, you know, I think that might be quite satisfying in a way, but it's also quite confusing when things change name. And there, there, I think there are organisms within streptococci which there is a general knowledge around people have heard of things like millerized strep and when we start changing the name it can be quite confusing uh, for clinicians but yeah, the definitely yeah yeah um, it's, it's difficult when you're phoning out and I, I, I to be honest when i tell someone you know we've got a sample we're growing a anginosis group organism 
I usually say, you might have heard of this as being called a Millerai group. Mm. Yeah. And there's three main organisms within this group. Um, mm. And you can think of those as the, the CIA, Constellatus, Intermedius, and Anginosis, which the group is named after. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's how I uh, remember them. And the, the reason that I'm singling them out and they've, you know, they're not on my mnemonic of all the other ones, is that they are known to be abscess forming. And they've got, uh, the reason that they do that is they are able to evade phagocytosis from uh, white blood cells. They contain certain adhesolysins and exotoxins, and uh, all, all three uh, species uh, share these. They uh, cohabit for want of a better term or phrase, with true anaerobic organisms, and they tend to cause polymicrobial infection. That makes it a bit more difficult to treat. You have to think about treating the anaerobes as well as the anginosis group streptococci. Um, and they tend to uh, have this propensity to disseminate both locally, but also in blood causing bacteremias. And so they can cause uh, endocarditis with a reasonable level of frequency. Luckily, for all of the Verdans groups, Anginosis and the uh, other four groups that I mentioned, Mitis, Mutans, Salivaris and Sanguinis, they're easy to kill and usually a big lactam, uh, a reasonably trustworthy big lactam like amoxicillin or keftraxone and things like that, plus or minus gentamicin, plus or minus a beta lactamase inhibitor if you want to add some anaerobe cover, is usually enough to shift all of these organisms. Yes. So we've covered alpha hemolytic strep. Beta hemolytic strep encompasses a lot of organisms which are very important clinically because they cause severe infections. Now, something that was always a source of confusion for me was alpha hemolysis, beta hemolysis, and then the Lansfield grouping, mm. A, B, C, D, E. I think it goes up to H. So Lansfield grouping it's important not to get confused between alpha and beta hemolysis and then Lansfield grouping, which is just the beta hemolysis producing organisms. And within that, essentially... Yeah, so, so alpha hemolytic strips, they don't have Lansfield groupings at all. Uh, well, some of them will group. So it is a bit, there's a bit of overlap, which again makes it more confusing, but I would just tend to not think about that. Mm. Well, I guess that's all the more reason to identify the hemolytic pattern Yes. First. Yep. And then if you if you discover beta hemolysis to say, okay, well now are they Lansfield group A, B, C, D, blah, blah, yep. blah. So the way this is done in the lab is, you know, very definitive. There's a there's a set protocol that you go through for each sample. So the Lansfield grouping, essentially these organisms have carbohydrates on their self surface. And you mix the organism colony that you've got from the agar plate with some sera, uh, some antibodies, and they cause the sample to sort of clump together. Now, the first one we should talk about is group A streptococci. Again, it's slightly strangely named group A streptococci, implying that that's just a bit, you know, it might be better thinking about group A streptococci of the beta hemolytic uh, type. Uh, and within that, the, the main organism is Streptococcus pyogenes. People talk about group A strep or gas sometimes, mm. and they, they usually mean Streptococcus pyogenes. There are other organisms which can group with this, 
but predominantly this is what we're talking about. This is an organism that mm. is uh, found on the skin and it can cause a lot of problems uh, with infection. It's, it's a very virulent organism. It has a lot of exotoxins, classic one being uh, streptococcal toxic shock syndrome toxin, um, which is a super antigen. And uh, when you get this, you can have up to 25% mortality uh, and about 10% of strep will have it. It's really group A strep. Um, and by that, I mean streptococcus pyogenes predominantly is a really, it's probably the streptococcus that we see causing the most severe infections. Do you agree, Jim? Yeah. Well, yeah, but then again, that's because we are infectious disease specialists and, and dealing with the, you know, inpatient complex infection hospital population. The reason that we worry about group A strep is, is that we're worried about this, this toxic shock syndrome. It's similar to the staph toxic shock syndrome toxin that we uh, discussed briefly last week, that it's, uh, you know, a super antigen and most of a lot of the cases of severe cellulitis that we see are caused by, by group A strep and our antimicrobial policy is kind of focused around treating group A strep and, and staph aureus and then all the other things that we're about to talk about, the other streptococci there, and they're kind of an afterthought really. Um, so yeah, group A strep, it sort of causes skin and soft tissue infection. It can also cause septic arthritis, so uh, joint infection. It can cause pneumonia. It's uh, a common cause of, of formerly what we would formally call septicemia. Now we call it severe sepsis due to bacteremia. Uh, in a, interestingly, in a fifth of cases, you don't have a focus. Uh, the strep is just turned up in the blood and you never find out where it came from. You pres- usually you would presume uh, the skin, uh, but it may not be accompanying a skin or soft tissue infection. You're just presuming that because that's uh, where it lives on, on human beings normally. Uh, and then it can cause kind of peripartum infections of, of the breasts uh, and genitals and uh, incisional uh, wound uh, sepsis as well. Luckily enough, it's exquisitely penicillin sensitive. And that's the uh, treatment of choice. And really, if you're going to use something else, you better have a really good reason, like the patient is allergic to it. I think when we're talking about streptococcus pyogenes infection, it's also important to think about the immunological response to this organism, which uh, because of superantigens and other aspects of the way it invades the host, people mount a very strong immune response to it. But sometimes this can lead to, to problems. Uh, so there's several conditions which are strongly linked mm. to streptococcus pyogenes infection. Uh, so scarlet fever, which is in the UK, certainly a, a pretty historic diagnosis, but internationally is you know uh, still a major problem, especially in low middle income countries, uh, where you get sort of a group uh, streptococcus pyogenes infection of the throat of pharyngitis, and then shortly afterwards get a sort of widespread rash. And other things that can lead to things like rheumatic fever um, with involvement of the heart valves or glomerular nephritis uh, in the kidneys. There's quite a few things that is linked to sort of other more unusual 
immune response uh, problems as well, neurological, you know, uh, a career as well, which is a sort of neurological um, problem, rarely. Uh, you don't tend to see that much in the UK, but internationally it's something that you need to worry about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, In fact, I a few years ago I was working in Australia in the Northern Territory and a big proportion of Indigenous Australians that were coming in were coming in from fairly rural, fairly fairly deprived communities. And there, almost everybody had scarlet fever or rheumatic fever. Um, And they all had valvular heart defects. Um, And, you know, we're talking about 20-year-olds coming in with critical aortic stenosis and and all that kind of thing. It was was, um, made their treatment more complex. So, yeah, uh, so group A strep has these kind of long-term effects that we see hardly at all in the UK, but if you uh, move abroad or you're working abroad, uh, you are likely to encounter those kind of long-term deleterious effects. So, James, the treatment of streptococcus pyogenes. Yeah, you can sort of divide it into two things, two two aspects of treatment. One is killing the organism and two is neutralising the toxin uh, reaction. So, Number one antibiotic for killing almost all streptococci, but in particular group A strep, is penicillin, benzoyl penicillin, uh, the IV formulation of it. It's got virtually no resistance mechanisms to Benpen. Uh, you can just give a huge load of it and it will kill just about every group A organism uh, uh, that it comes into contact with. The other thing to do would be to give something to neutralize the exotoxin production. You don't always have to do this, but in severe cases of infection, we do. And group A strep is a fairly common cause of necrotizing fasciitis, uh, where the uh, group A strep is not only just infecting the skin and soft tissue, but actually the fascia and down into the muscle and down into the bone. It's like a, a fulminant, aggressive infection that you have to uh, get on top of fairly quickly and the we don't know we don't have a lot of trials in necrotizing fasciitis but the one thing we do know is that regimens which contain uh, inhibitors of protein synthesis and therefore exotoxins such as clindamycin containing regimens those patients do better than regimens which do not uh, contain those uh, drugs so we use clindamycin and sometimes linezolid uh, to uh, inhibit growth of the organism, which it also does, but also specifically to inhibit exotoxin production. Resistance is quite low in group A strep, it's about 2% uh, of clindamycin, that is. Uh, I don't know about uh, linezolid in particular. And then the other thing that you can do in very certain circumstances is use IVIG, uh, IV immunoglobulin, and this is presumed to be doing the same thing. Uh, you pool IVIG from hundreds and hundreds of donors uh, of blood and plasma. And uh, the idea is that there are some antibodies against group A strep exotoxins uh, residing within that donation. And you just give that to the patient and that improves survival in certain conditions. I guess the only other thing to say is if you've got a penicillin allergy, then you end up using vancomycin, which is really nowhere near as good as an antibiotic for this infection. So uh, not a good, not a good thing to have if you've got a true penicillin allergy. 
No, and that's um, you know another reason that you know if I was use have use vancomycin, I would be thinking about using a second agent as well to try and kind of double up, uh, double up on that. Not that there's any evidence of a survival advantage of using multiple uh, agents, but there we go. What about Group B? Uh, group B Streptococcus, Streptococci, uh, Streptococcus agalactiae. Yeah, so I always have to think in my head which way around it goes because the next group is called Strep Disgalactiae. And how could you get them confused? Well, the um, so the way I, I think of it is A, what's the closest letter to A? It's B. So group B is <laughs> Agalactiae. You laugh all you like, Callum, much. Okay, I have to. I do the same. I just, I guess A becomes before D in the alphabet. B comes before C. That's how I think about it. Okay. Well, you can think about it any fancy way you care to uh, care to say. But I, the way I think of it is A is close to B. So strep, group B strep is agalactiae. It uh, kind of resides mostly in the GI tract and it causes kind of a similar spectrum of actions to the other things that we've talked about. It causes meningitis, chest infections. It can cause septicemia. But interestingly, it sort of tends to do it in kind of the extremes of age, so the very old or the very young, you know, talking about babies. Um, and it is a cause of kind of genital infection or, or placental infection or caramnionitis uh, in pregnant patients. And so, in fact, this is one of the few cases where if you find that somebody is colonized with group B strep and they're pregnant, you would treat asymptomatic infection, you would eradicate it, and that's to reduce the chance that they will uh, get a peripartum infection in the future. Do you, it's important to point out that it's a normal thing to find in these sites, and you, you know, often will find that someone is colonized with group B strep in the vaginal tract, which sometimes is difficult because what you're really worried about is postnatal uh, sepsis especially you know of the infant and there's different approaches taken in america you know you get a screening culture and if you've got it and you get decolonized in the uk we don't do that and you look at you know which patients are at risk of having group b strep and treat them based on risk which you know you, you catch a lot of patients with uh you know whilst limiting unnecessary antibiotics uh and uh, unnecessary screening uh, so there's different approaches to it but certainly something that there's a lot of worry about and often this is the situation in which group b strep will be talked about i think it's something that's well well recognized because obviously um we're obviously very concerned and want to make sure that everything is done to prevent infections in and around the uh the natal period yeah, group C, G, strep, uh, they're, they're kind of lumped together, but there's a bunch of species which will will group as sometimes C, sometimes G. Um, uh, so the uh, strep disgalactiae, strep equisimilis, streptococci zooepidemicus, these cause, or these are thought of sometimes as a mild group A style uh uh, infection. They're colonizers of the skin and upper respiratory tract, and they can cause skin and soft tissue infection. They can cause arthritis. They're a cause of septicemia, uh, but they're not nearly as virulent as the group A strep. Uh, but usually they, they're not uncommon cause of, um, of cellulitis, which is kind of the main context in which 
uh, I uh, think of them. So we've we've skipped over quite a few letters there. We've talked about A, B, C, G. So just going back into it a little bit, those are the most important ones. Uh, D uh, used to include mainly intracocci, which uh, quite a long time ago now were part of the streptococcus group, um, but are no longer within that. Mm. And intracocci we'll talk about separately. Um, and there's some other organisms within D as well. Um, James, do you want to talk about them? Yes. Okay. So group D, there are group D streptococci, which are usually non-hemolytic, actually. So these are the gamma-hemolytic organisms. They were formerly called the bovis uh, group because they were first identified in, in cows, but they've been kind of renamed um, Galliticus. And there's two subspecies. Uh, there's Streptococcus gallolyticus infantarius and Streptococcus gallolyticus pasturanius. Uh, and these uh, colonize the GI tract of about 7% of, of all adults. And the, uh, the reason that these are important, you might be wondering, is that they are a cause of septicemia and endocarditis in people who have a breakdown in the gut barrier in the colon, such as colorectal carcinoma, uh, or uh, sometimes, uh, you know, colitis or, or an adenoma. So the classic, this turns up in the MRCP all the time. Uh, the classic story is this patient has endocarditis and you grow strep bovis, now called strep gallaliticus. What is the next test that you should do? And the answer is colonoscopy. You're remembering this, don't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely an exam. And interestingly, it's one of those things that's an exam that comes up in clinical practice. And it is, yeah. it is strongly associated. Not so uncommonly, it's... yeah. And, and sometimes we get asked about it. But quite often, actually, the clinical team, because it has turned up in the MRCP basically every year since, uh, since Bovis was discovered, um, they've already done all the stuff and they want to know how to, you know, uh, how to treat it. Um, and they've already, usually they've already uh, ordered the colonoscopy uh, that is required. Um, so they, yeah, like I say, so they cause endocarditis. They can affect the joint and they can affect the, the discs of the, of the spine as well. Uncommonly, uh, they can cause meningitis. But these are all kind of after effects of, of seeding, usually from a, a bacteremic episode. Um, and what's the source? Usually it's the lower GI tract, so the, the colon. So that's group D. And then F uh, can, and this is what we were talking about earlier on, where we were saying that Lansfield grouping is for beta-cumulatic strep. So now I'm going to tell you that group F are uh, the anginosis group, which are alpha-cumulatic alpha strep. So they can group to group F. So uh, confusing. Uh, not going to talk about that anymore. All right. So to the loyal listener, um, I got to a fairly high level of training without knowing that. So I doubt you need to. And group G we've already talked about, which is the Streptococcus disclati. Mm -hmm. That's it. I don't think we should talk about that anymore. All right. Well, one thing I'd like to say briefly is infective endocarditis. So there is a really good paper in, uh, published in 2020 from Denmark and uh, is published in circulation. And essentially what they did is they took a lot of data about 
patients who had bacteremia with streptococci and linked it using their coding to patients who had infective endocarditis and did some fancy uh, work with uh, uh, linkage to, to find, you know, which organism caused infective endocarditis and put this all together to show prevalence. And I think it's, it's interesting because basically all the streptococci can in some ways cause infective endocarditis. And one of the things that's quite difficult clinically sometimes is to know, you know, is this the patient where I should be, you know, really just, you know, discussing of cardiology, thinking about transesophageal echo rather than just a transferacic, et cetera. They sort of differentiated the different groups of streptococci into low, so less than 3% risk of infective endocarditis if you've got bacteremia, moderate, which was 3 to 10, high, 10 to 30, and very high risk. And just to sort of briefly say which ones were found to be very high risk, uh, streptococcus gallaticus, so that's the old strep bovis, mm. um, that was around about 30% of the uh, incidence of uh, patients with bacteremia, they had uh, infective endocarditis identified. Uh, Streptococcus sanguinis, so one of our um, Verdun strep, and strep gordani, which is another uh, of the mitis group, uh, and strep mutans, which was up at 48% of patients who had a bacteremia had infective endocarditis, so very high risk. Um, and that was the sort of very high risk, but actually they're not the predominant cause. So uh, mitis and oralis, uh, moderate cause, along with um, some other um, Verdun streps. Uh, and then lower sort of moderate risk was the uh, group B streps, so strep uh, A galatiae, uh, the group C slash G streps, so strep dysgalatiae, uh, strep anginosis, so the Milleri group. Um, and then low risk was streptococcus pyogenes and streptococcus pneumoniae. Mm-hmm. Now, that's quite a rapid rundown. It's useful to go and have a look at the, the, the paper, um, which I, I would suggest. It's got a very nice graphical representation, which obviously you can't put in a podcast. Yeah. Uh, and you drop it in the show notes, the DOI. Yeah. Um, prevalence of infective endocarditis in streptococcal bloodstream infection is dependent on streptococcal species. Mm. Um, so it's a nice little uh, thing to, to, to think about with infective endocarditis. Uh, so Callum, how do you kill streptococci? Well, the best way, if you can, is using some sort of beta-lactam antibiotic, a penicillin. Uh, if you're going to use intravenous therapy, which is what we're doing quite a lot of the time in severe infections, it's going to be IV benzyl penicillin, or orally it's something called phenoxymethyl penicillin. Mm. Uh, they're very similar uh, drugs. They're just penicillin, which has been modified slightly, so it sticks around longer in the body. Um, now, these need to be given quite frequently but they are very you know strongly bind to the penicillin binding protein so um yes use a penicillin if you can there's some situations where penicillin won't work we mentioned briefly earlier on streptococcus pneumoniae so outside the uk there are countries with penicillin resistant strep pneumoniae and so it's always important. And as infectious disease specialists, we would advocate for any time you're seeing a patient uh, is worth just quickly checking, have you been abroad recently? Because mm-hmm. it's important for lots of different presentations. But in this situation, you want to know, especially if someone's got, say, meningitis, have they been abroad? Because if you've got a penicillin-resistant strep pneumonia, your normal treatment's not going to work. Um, and particularly if they've got meningitis because um, getting drugs into the brain across the 
blood-brain barrier is harder than usual. So say you've got a, a low-level resistance to, to penicillin, you know, if you've got, say, pneumonia, a penicillin mm. will still work. But if it's meningitis, you're getting less penicillin to where you want it to be, so you're more likely to fail. We'll talk about pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics yeah, later in the future on, because we're both yeah. very interested in it. And James has a, um, well, is qualifying in pharmacology. So we'll, we'll talk about that more. And um, I think this might be a good example. That's the point I was going to make, actually. So people, you know, think about resistance and sensitivity as hard kind of binary things. But in fact, there's a bit more of a gradient between that and, and uh, that comes into play when you have bits of the body where you've got an infection that you want to treat, where you may not necessarily have, you know, full penetration of that antibiotic into, into the space. And then the classic example of that is, is crossing the blood brain barrier into, uh, into the brain. And then the mechanism just briefly for strep pneumo being resistant to penicillin, Jim. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know what Callum you're going to need to actually tell me. This mechanism is, the alteration of penicillin binding protein structure. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, so if we're talking about other antibiotics for penicillin, so another beta-lactam antibiotic we could use. Other antibiotics for streptococci. Yes, yeah. it's just streptococci, yeah. Yeah, so in terms of other antibiotics, streptococci, say that you want to treat more than one organism, for example. Say you want to other also cover staph. The classical example would be... a. Uh, cellulitis, skin soft tissue infection. Well, you could use fluclox, and fluclox will cover staph and it will cover a bunch of streptococci. It's not so good at covering group B strep, and that's um, uh, it's known that group B strep has higher MIC breakpoints as in levels, uh, the level at which the fluclox will inhibit group B strep is higher uh, than with the other uh, organisms. But for in particular, group A strep, um, which is Group A strep and Staph aureus cause the lion's share of, of skin and soft tissue infection. Um, fluclox will work fine. In fact, uh, fluclox, in fact, Group A strep is more sensitive to fluclox-acillin than Staph aureus is, which I didn't realize until I researched for this episode. Other beta-lactams such as uh, cephalosporins, in particular the second and third generation, uh, one's kefiroxine, keftraxone, they will work fine. Uh, keftraxone is used particularly for uh, if CNS penetration is required. Uh, carbapenems, uh, meropenem, imipenem. Uh, and then you're on to your non-beta-lactam drugs. Uh, so all of these will usually work. Again, it depends on your local resistance pattern, but uh, we'll, we'll run through them. Another antibiotic that we can use to treat streptococcal infections, particularly in patients who've got penicillin allergy, would be glycopeptides, including things like vancomycin and ticoplanin. So your protein synthesis inhibiting um, antimicrobials, so your macrolides, clarithromycin, azithromycin, for example, uh, tetracyclines, such as tetracycline itself or doxycycline, clindamycin, and linezolid are used particularly to inhibit uh, exotoxin production. Gentamicin doesn't work. In order for gentamicin to get into a cell, it has to be imported through certain porins that uh, just the, uh, 
aminoglycosides, they're, they're a combination between an amine, as in a proteiny bit, and a glycoside, a carbohydrate bit. So they're quite polar. And so they have to be imported through certain porins, which can deal with these kind of charged polar molecules. And gram-negative organisms have these. Staphylococci have these, but streptococci don't. And so you can't use it as the primary treatment for treatment of streptococci. Uh, you can't use it as the primary treatment for streptococci. You can use it if you're combining it with a beta-lactam because then you're breaking down the cell wall and that allows the uh, gentamicin or an amyloglycoside to get in. But you couldn't use it on its own in isolation, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. And then the other uh, antimicrobials, there's... Um, things like daptomycin, which work on the polarity at the, uh, of the cell membrane itself, which is where most of the metabolic activity happens in, in bacterial cells. The issue with daptomycin is that it's inactivated by lung surfactants, so you can't use it in chest sepsis, but you could use it in you know, bacteremias or enterocarditis. Um, and then stuff that works at the level of DNA synthesis, cotrimoxazole has antistreptococcal activity, Quinolones are divided into generations, uh, as, as uh, you may or may not know. So you've got the lower and lower, lower generation ones like naladixic acid and ciprofloxacin, and you've got the higher generation quinolones like moxifloxacin and uh, levofloxacin. As you go up the generations, you acquire anti-streptococcal activity. So levofloxacin and moxifloxacin. Uh, are anti-streptococcal quinolones. You can use them. They're uncommonly used in uh, Scotland, certainly, and the UK in general. And I didn't really use them a lot elsewhere when I was working in Australia and New Zealand either. And that's kind of because of um, a general dislike of quinolones because of their, of their C. diff risk. Uh, I know that they're very commonly used elsewhere uh, in the world, in the US and Canada in particular. Great. So we've run through briefly all the antibiotics and we, we would hope to have a deeper dive into different antibiotic groups in the future. And that's come to the end of our sort of planned discussion points, which were what streptococci are, what streptococci do, how we classify streptococci and how we kill them. So, James, any closing thoughts on streptococci? Yeah, so to sum up, they are a... Uh... They're gram-positive cocci, they're catalase negative, and they tend to divide in pairs or chains. Uh, they're further classified by their hemolytic pattern on blood agar, so alpha-hemolytic would be strep pneumoniae and the viridan streptococci, uh, which contains abscess-forming streps like uh, the anginosis group and mitis and mutans and kind of mouthy streps, we might call them. Uh, and then beta-hemolytic strep, which is group A strep, a big nasty cause of skin soft tissue infection, group B and group C and G. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Um, I've been Callum and he's been Jane. Uh, any questions, comments or suggestions, you send them in to idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening.